Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Katie. Hey, Ashley. So this month, we are taking a break from our Tackling the Taboo series. We are recording this on the Friday morning of Memorial Day weekend. I think we're probably both a little antsy to get our weekend started. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that means it is pretty solidly summertime. We thought we would celebrate that by talking about what we're enjoying these days. What have we been reading, watching, doing, listening to as we transition from spring into summer? Yeah. We're going back to 2017 Kindred's times when we would always talk about this in our episodes. Yes, I love it. I do miss that sometimes. I do too. So it's fun to do a whole episode about that. And I do love summer. It's both of our birthday seasons, Mm -hmm. Um, which have you heard people call instead of cancer, moonchild sign? Have you heard this? No, but I do really like that. I do too. So it's the moon. It's going to be the moonchild season this summer. And (laughs) I love it. I know. Me too. I'm going to start saying that. Um, Yeah, because cancer has such a negative connotation now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It does. (laughs) Okay, anyway. This isn't officially tackling the taboo, but I know at least some of what I've been spending my time on will probably touch on a few of them. So when is it not? <laughs> when is it not? Exactly. Uh, I can kick us off with one of the books that I've been reading. Yes, please. Okay. Many of you will remember the episode we did with Sue Monk Kidd back in 2021, almost two years ago now, about her latest book that had come out, The Book of Longings. Mm -hmm. And you and I are big fans of Sue Monk Kidd. And I actually, I just picked up a copy of The Secret Life of Bees to reread because it's been over 20 years since that book came out, which is, I can't even believe that that's possible that it's been that long. I walked into the gym one day and they have a lending library and I was just browsing and they actually had a copy of Traveling with Pomegranates, which is Sue Monk Kidd's memoir that she co-wrote with her daughter and kid Taylor. And I picked it up because I realized that was the only book of hers that I hadn't read minus like her pre-awakening stuff. Oh yeah. The like Bible, Bible studies or something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I thought I should, I should grab this and read it. So it's a memoir about Sue and Anne's journeys to Greece and Turkey and France as they navigate like big moments in their individual lives. And that impacts their mother daughter relationship too. And her daughter is dealing with some anxiety. She just got rejected from a graduate school program and is figuring out what she's going to do next. And she kind of wants to pursue writing, but she's worried about what people will think if she's following in her mom's footsteps mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the whole time Sue yeah exactly <laughs> and Sue could tell that Anne's struggling but doesn't really know how to talk to her about mental health and Sue herself is dealing with some health issues that she doesn't want to worry Anne with and so there's like this distance between them that neither of them can kind of figure out how to bridge over mm-hmm. even though they're practically living in the same hotel room at the time and of course they eventually find their way back to each other and embrace their newest version of their mother-daughter relationship. It's very, very sweet. It's kind of slow. It's like very contemplative, which is very much like Sue Monk Kids writing in general. So it's a little bit of a slow read. But what really struck me in reading it, though, was I'm actually like much closer to Sue's age in the book. She was turning 50 at the time that they went on their first trip than her daughter, who just graduated from college. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm about to turn 40. And so the book really struck me in a different way mm-hmm. than if I had read it when it was published back in 2010. You know, for one, I wasn't a mom yet, but also like I'm that much older now and I could relate to Sue's story so much more than Anne's, which was really weird for me because yeah. I still think yeah. of myself as like really young. You know, because Anne's all like, what do I do after college? And then she's like, oh, do I marry this guy or should I go kiss this boy I met in Greece the last time I was here? And I mean, it's just like so relatable when you're in your 20s, but not so much now. Yeah, not so much now. So far behind me. But Sue, on the other hand, is talking a lot about like her midlife transitions. She's entering menopause. Mm -hmm. She is rethinking her career. She is expanding her writing career to include fiction. She had not started 
the secret life of bees, writing the secret life of bees just yet. She was like getting the ideas. In fact, her trip to France was where she encountered the Black Madonna, which was like part of the whole story. Uh huh. And so like, and then of course there, the evolution of being a mom to, to an adult daughter instead of a, a child. So I like kind of skimmed Anne's chapter. Sorry, Anne. And I really took in Sue's writing just because it was yeah. much more relatable to me. And then to make it all the more poignant and sweet, I read most of it while curled up in bed with my daughter because we've started reading at night before both of us go to sleep like together. It's really, really amazing. I, I this is like that. parenting, parenting goals yes. unlocked <laughs> Yes, <laughs> that we could do this together. So as I was reading this Traveling with Pomegranates, all I can think was, wow, like 10 years ago when I was turning 30, Sam didn't exist. And now I'm about to turn 40. And in 10 more years, I'm going to be 50 and Sam's going to be 18 and graduating from high school. So it really helps me feel very present in this moment, which I feel like is so sweet because I'm like in between, you know, the 20 something young adult woman figuring out who she is and the menopausal 50 year old that Sue is in this book. And so it just felt almost like a meditative practice and reading it. And like, to be honest, it definitely wasn't my favorite Sue Monk kid book, but it was a really special way to read it, you know, with my daughter under my arm and just to appreciate the time when I'm about to turn 40 and that my daughter still wants to curl up in bed. And in reading the book, this actually gave me a lot of hope that she might still want to do that even when she's like in her 20s and figuring out, you know, who she wants to be. Because there are some moments when when Anne and Sue like are back in that just like very sweet mother daughter uh dynamic like when she was a little girl. So, it was a really sweet read. I would definitely recommend it if you're wanting to reflect on, you know, your own relationship to your mother or just life changes. There's a lot that's relatable in there. Less so about the travel itself and more about just like what it means to be a woman at different stages of your life. So, that's my first like moving into summer read. Um, and it was also a million degrees everywhere they went because they were like in Greece in the summer. <laughs> so uh, uh-huh. <laughs> it brought some of that too. <laughs> also relatable. Yes. Yes. Yeah, very relatable. <laughs> All right. Your turn. What have you been enjoying? I love that you talked about this because I've been thinking a lot about Sue lately, especially you mentioned this. She didn't start writing fiction until she was in her fifties. And yeah. I find that so inspiring. And it's like, um, I don't know the word for it, but like a totem or something that I hold on to that because I've been thinking about um, as I am pursuing more creativity in my life and I have never really written fiction. I've written a lot of stuff, like more (laughs) work stuff, you know, like I can write, but I've never written fiction and I have a lot of ideas. And the idea that like we're supposed to have all this stuff figured out in our 20s, like you can only be a writer if you started writing and as soon as you, you know, could hold a pen or whatever. Right. And so I really love that um, she's this model of someone who kind of really hit her stride and found her passions like in the second half of her life. And yeah, I don't know, I'm really holding on to that as I figure out what I want to do next. And I am speaking this into the universe. But one of the things on my list is to take some creative writing courses and just figure out if that's something that I want to pursue more. Fully support that. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I'm glad you shared that. Okay. So before I share what I had planned to talk about, I want to say we did not coordinate this. We did not talk ahead of time about what we were going to be sharing. And so of course, we ended up choosing similar things. So I'll just get right into it, obviously. (laughs) The first thing that I plan to talk about is actually a combo, two movies that go really well together. The first is the Judy Bloom documentary on Amazon Prime called Judy Bloom Forever. And the second is the movie adaptation of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, which, of course, everyone knows was her breakout bestseller in 1970. I love that we both chose these iconic, groundbreaking female authors to talk about Mm -hmm. on this episode. I just love it. Mm -hmm. So I got to see the Margaret movie with my mom and my sister a few weeks ago, and it was a really sweet experience. It's a good movie. I think some people who really loved the book might quibble with some plot points and things, you know, the fidelity to the book and stuff like that. But I haven't read that book since 
middle school. Yeah, so exactly. <laughs> I was surprised by how much of it came back. Honestly, like mm-hmm. as I was watching the movie, I was like, oh yeah, this is about to happen. So um, I thought that was really interesting. I loved it. It was a really sweet movie. I guess before I get, you know, into what I liked about both of these movies together, first I want to ask you, did you read Bloody June? Bloody June. Did you read Judy <laughs> Bloom books as a kid? Of course. <laughs> of of course. course I did. I read a lot of them. Not all of them, but I can remember reading Super Fudge, that whole series uh-huh. when I was in probably early elementary school around Sam's age. And of course, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret was mm-hmm. a favorite. It's like, requ- it almost felt like required reading, I yes. think, for girls. Mm-hmm. Um, the one I really loved, though, was Just As Long As We're Together. I don't know if you ever read that I one. I never read that one, no. I think they're a little bit older. Um, it's a group of three friends in middle school. I think they're around 13 at the time. And I read that. I had a copy of that and I can remember reading it like multiple times. And Aww. I just felt like Judy Bloom's books were really the only honest books I had mm-hmm. about adolescence Agreed. that just felt like really just addressed straight up, like the things that you deal with, especially as a girl. And I, I loved the Babysitter's Club series and the books. Like, but they never talked about periods or anything, which, and looking back, it's no, so you're right. strange because they're all like, they're all in middle school. Um, and so it always just felt sort of like weird to me that a series like that, that had so many books would not address like puberty at all. Um, so I really appreciated the Judy Bloom books for like being frank and honest about like what these experiences are like and that they still speak to audiences now. Just, is kind of amazing. So anyway, I want to hear about the movies because I haven't seen either of them yet. Okay. So the documentary was great. And until I watched it, I had really forgotten how many of her books that I actually read in elementary and middle school. The Super Fudge, all the Fudge books, Tales of the Fourth Grade Nothing, all of those. Those were uh-huh. some of my favorites too. I read those over and over. And I think... Aside from Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. I don't know that I read a whole lot of other ones, but I loved learning about Judy's life from the documentary. She was a stay-at-home mom in the 60s and 70s. She got married like right out of college to an older man who was already an established attorney. And so she just fell like right into have the kids be the stay-at-home mom. And it was just assumed that he would have the career while she raised the kids. Like they didn't even really discuss it. And then when she started getting kind of bored at home and wanted to write, he told her he would support her writing as long as she did it in her free time and it didn't take her away from her responsibilities at home. I'm sure she had lots of free time raising kids. Right, right. (laughs) I was really struck by that, by both how much things have changed for women since then, but also by how much they haven't. Because mm-hmm. it's 50 years later, and so many women still have to choose between parenting and a fulfilling career, while men just don't even have to think about it. It's maybe not as explicit as it was back then. Like, you didn't, you aren't going to hear men now being like, I don't want my wife to work. But, like, how many women do you know? I can think off the top of my head of at least five or six that either cut back on their hours or go to a working from home and juggle work from home and childcare. Because the cost of childcare is just so high. Like during the pandemic. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Women's careers took a huge hit during the pandemic because we were the ones that had the flexibility or whatever to stay home. And it just, I mean, not as much has changed as we like to think. But Mm. one part I really loved in the documentary, Judy said she was watching the women's equality movement. She was kind of from the sidelines, you know, and she wished that she could be out there marching. But she had small kids at home. She couldn't do that. She focused on what she could do, which was right. So she wrote meaningfully and truthfully for a young audience about things that adults were scared to talk about with them. Just like you were saying, menstruation, masturbation, puberty, bullying, religion, sex, all of that. And what she did was nothing short of paradigm shifting. And it just, to me, that really goes to show how we can all contribute. We can all affect change. We don't all have to be in the streets. We can use Mm -hmm. our gifts and our skills and our circumstances to make things happen. And I just really loved that she talked about that. So I read 
the Margaret book probably in fifth grade or so. And I wouldn't say it was a formative book for me the way that it was for a lot of other kids. It did feel like required reading, but like I I didn't go back to it over and over. And I do remember relating to Margaret at that age, especially, and I think this is just, this speaks to where I was at that age. The parts about religion really stuck Mm. with me because I talked to God at night around that age too. And I remember, you know, praying for things that I wanted and bargaining with God. I'll do this if you'll please let this crush like (laughs) me back. Uh Please help me do well on this test, you know? And I appreciated that the book dealt with like, the complicated aspects of religion that I was just starting to understand, like interreligious marriage and families breaking up over religious differences and also how people can be really small minded about religion and use religion as a weapon against each other. I was about that age when I was reading Anne Frank's diary as well. Mm -hmm. And so I was just starting to really come into an understanding of the complexities of religion. And it was hard to get people to talk about. I mean, people still don't want to talk about that as an adult. So reading that in a book geared for my age felt really important. And that was the first time I'd ever read about someone's family disowning them for not conforming to their religion. And that's something I know like a lot of LGBTQ folks deal with even now. So it was really important that Judy didn't pander or gloss over tough concepts for kids because life is hard. Being a kid is hard and kids, you know, kids can understand and hold a lot more than we give them credit for, I think. But Mm. seeing the Margaret movie now, okay, I think it is so funny that you talked about identifying more with Sue than her daughter in the Traveling with Pomegranates book because I was watching the Margaret movie and I found myself identifying with Margaret's mother. (laughs) (laughs) we're moms it's real (laughs) and also she was played by rachel mcadams who is like our age Mm -hmm. she's our like you know pop female movie icon Uh (laughs) uh-huh so seeing her in this role it's just it's funny how that works and here was this woman you know she was an art teacher she was putting her career on hold so her husband could take a new job and move them to the jersey suburbs which is what they thought they were all supposed to want you know they were leaving manhattan for the burbs and she was staying at home because she thought that's what she was supposed to do what she was supposed Mm -hmm. to want but she was bored out of her mind and not fitting in with all the other you know high-strung pta moms and she's raising this preteen and trying to figure out how to give margaret space and independence but be there for her at the same time you know so i think you and sammy might really like this movie (laughs) i can't believe sammy's almost margaret's age already it's just crazy (laughs) so the last thing i'll say about this is i loved all of rachel mcadams clothes in the movie and the decor of their new york city apartment it's set in the 70s and she's playing this like low-key sort of bohemian artist but like blended with a 70s mom there's like macrame everywhere and all of these (laughs) gorgeous house plants at one point she's got like a monstera plant that like could have come off of any instagram influencer now (laughs) and she's always wearing these like loose shorts and oversized graphic t-shirts with like birds and sunsets on them it's very my vibe right now and i'm watching the movie like i gotta go home and google like where did where do these shirts come from (laughs) Oh my gosh, I love that. It reminded me of watching Alicia Silverstone in the Babysitter's Club series where I was like, okay, you're Mm -hmm. the mom now, but you Uh were like, yes, the icon when I was a kid. It is really interesting to like grow up with these actors and they all become the moms, which I guess makes sense (laughs) because of their age. But it is a little like, oh, okay, time really has flown by. Um, Oh, this is our role now. (laughs) I know. I know. It's a little it's a little strange. But OK, full disclosure, I did read through the notes beforehand. So I'm like, I it's going to be rainy all weekend, this Memorial oh. Day weekend. And so I'm like, yes, we should go to a movie. And so I found the trailer and I showed it to Sammy just to see what her reaction would be. And I wasn't sure because it's I think it's like PG-13. It's maybe like a little bit old for her but she was yeah she loved no but she loved it like she's definitely ready for that kind of thing so we're gonna go see it tomorrow um, afternoon just the two of us which I think is maybe the first time just the two of us have gone to see a movie together so it's gonna be like 
a very special. She's very excited to go to the movies and see this movie together with her mom. So, oh, I love that. You yeah, guys get thank to you have for this inspiring me. Yes, <laughs> I'll let you know how it goes and what questions come up after. <laughs> oh my gosh, I was just thinking like. Of course, there's the I must increase my bust. Oh, yeah. She's <laughs> already she's already chanted iconic. that. Oh, my God. She heard it in the trailer. So she as we were walking the dog, she was. Saying, oh, my God. I don't even know if she knows what it means. The rest of it. I think, you know, it, it might have been PG-13, but it didn't feel PG-13. Like it, nothing in it is particularly um, like salacious. I mean, it seems I feel like very it, Is it kind of like now and then was for us when yes. we were in? Mm-hmm. Okay. Because that's the equivalent, like in terms of kind of going back in time, Yep, dealing mm-hmm. with more adult topics, but still with kids in it. So yeah, I yep. think she's going to be, I think she'll love it. Yeah. Okay. So keeping with the more retro vibe, going back in time to books that were written a while ago, the other book I read recently that I wanted to talk about was published back in 1952. Okay. Have you heard of The Price of Salt or the not. movie Carol? Yes, I have heard of Carol. I have not seen okay. it, though. Okay. So it's based on this novel Okay, that was published by a really famous author, Patricia Highsmith. She wrote The Talented Mr. Ripley and oh. Strangers on a Train. Okay. Like a lot, a lot of her stuff has been made into movies. But this one, she used the pen name Claire Morgan because, of course, it's the story of two women falling in love. And it apparently also inspired the movie Thelma and Louise a little oh, bit. really? Now that I've yeah. seen a lot of times. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Loosely. But there is a road trip part of this. Okay. Okay. So the book is told from the perspective of a 19-year-old, 19-year-old Therese, who is an aspiring art, uh, aspiring set designer in New York City. But, like, of course, no one's hired her. At mm-hmm. all. She she's can't even 19. afford to be in the union. Mm-hmm. And so she's trying to pay the bills. She gets this very mundane job working at the toy section of a big department store. And it's right before Christmas one day and walks Carol, who's like beautiful and older than Kate Therese. Blanchett, and right? Kate Blanchett plays her. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And like, it's one of those like total crush right away. And Therese kind of goes back a little bit and you see that this isn't the first time that she's had feelings for a woman before, but it's like the first time that she decides to pursue it at all. And because Therese has helped Carol with a delivery, which you later find out is a doll for her daughter, she has her address. And so she like sends her a thank you letter. Um, and so then Carol calls the store and invites her to lunch. And so they begin this relationship like very, very slowly. Cause again, this is 1952. Um, so then over the course of their relationship, Therese learns Carol is married with a young daughter, but her marriage is falling apart and Carol doesn't see her daughter very often. And then one day Carol's like, let's go on a road trip. Do you want to go on a road trip for three weeks across the country? And Trez is 19 and is working at a department store. Of course. So she's like, absolutely. Yeah. I will go on a road trip with you. <laughs> and so it's a few weeks in and like their relationship is starting to escalate a good bit. And they actually figure out that someone's following them. Carol's soon-to-be ex has hired a private investigator to, like, follow them around oh. and record their encounters, like, bugging the hotel oh. and everything like that, because it's all about, like, the custody of of mm. their young daughter. Mm. And so once they realize that this is happening, and they try to escape for a while, like, go from city to city, but eventually he kind of catches up with them, and then everything shifts between them. So since the story is told from Therese's perspective, we get a lot more insight into her thoughts, like how she's dealing with the uncertainty of when is she going to see Carol again? What is their relationship going to be coming to terms with her sexuality and like understanding her past too. But one of my favorite parts about it being in the 1950s is that they're communicating between each other, like through letters primarily. And yeah, like they're writing letters every day. So we get a lot more of Carol's thoughts that way. She's trying to figure out how to be who she is while not losing everything of importance to her. So I'm definitely a hopeful romantic. I don't say hopeless anymore. Hopeful romantic. And being a lesbian back in 1952 did not lend itself to much ease. That being said, I don't want to spoil the ending, but I'll just say it's refreshing to read a sapphic novel from that time that does not end like in just pure tragedy. Yeah, like <laughs> because... everybody dying by suicide or... Exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And it's a really beautifully written book. They're, they've said that this is like Pr- Patricia Highsmith's best book, like the way that it was written. Um, and it's a slow burn for sure, kind of like 
traveling um, with pomegranates, but it's also just a reminder of how costly being queer was back then and still is, you know, in lots and lots of ways. And at the same time, it's a powerful testament to the sacrifices that people have made throughout time to be who they are and love whom they love. And I really was surprised at how it ended. So I highly recommend it. It's a really great read and one that I had never heard of until like this past year. So getting my queer education, one book yes. at a time. Yes. <laughs> I was just about to say, I really appreciate that recommendation. I think I'm going to check it out. It sounds really good. And I also appreciate you just reminding us about the cost of being queer. That feels very appropriate as we move into Pride Month, mm-hmm. especially, you know, the cost back then, but now also as we're seeing more and more laws and hate campaigns. I feel like every day targeting LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's easy, you know, you see all the cute pride stuff at Target. And I think it's easy for people to forget that the origin of pride is the Stonewall riots in 1969 when gay, queer, and trans people were fighting back against police brutality, which sounds very familiar considering mm-hmm. it was over 50 years ago. And we're still dealing with it now. So absolutely. I just appreciate that. And I don't know. I think it might be cool to do an episode on pride or something like that down the road. Yeah. It'd be really fun to talk about. Um, cause that's not something that I was really aware of. I thought it was just a big party and parades and stuff. Mm. Um, and you know, the last few years I've really learned a lot. So. All right. The next thing I want to share is not like a specific recommendation, but it's something that has been bringing me a lot of joy over the past few months. So I want to talk about it. And that is tapping back into my creativity, which I guess I mentioned a little bit uh, (laughs) at the beginning. So back in the spring, I was looking for something that I could do that was portable and not a huge time commitment and not messy, you know, like painting and things like that. I wanted something I could just pick it up, work on it a bit, put it down, take it on road trips and stuff like that. And I had gone on this girls weekend with my two friends back in February and they're both into knitting and crochet and they bring it everywhere they go and they're always working on really cool things. And I'm not interested in knitting, but they inspired me to explore something in the fiber art realm. So I have been teaching myself embroidery and I I really love it. Yeah. I started with a really simple kit that I bought online that comes with everything you need, the needles, the thread, which we call embroidery floss. It's literally thread. I don't know why it's called floss, but a hoop to hold the fabric. And then the fabric comes like printed in a washable ink um, with the pattern on it already. So you just basically learn the stitches on top of the pattern. And then after you're done, you soak it in water and like the ink underneath goes away and you have this really, yeah, it's very cool. So I started with two patterns from that kit that were just stitch samplers, learning how to do all the, you know, basic stitches you need. And what I loved is I could really see a difference in progress from when I first started uh, between the first pattern and the next. So it was so satisfying that I got really into it. And since then I bought a book that's like a stitch encyclopedia and just some random extra fabric and more floss colors from Joanne Crafts. So I'm really into it. And there's a few things that I love about embroidery. The first that I just had not given much thought to, but it's a really ancient art form. Examples of like decorative embroidery have been found in China that go back as far as 5th century BC. And it, yeah, and it just feels really cool to be learning this art form that's been really important to so many cultures and especially women all over the world throughout history, you know? So that's the first thing I love. And then the second thing (laughs) is that I have learned it is a very transferable skill because (laughs) a few months ago, Avery got a hold of a pair of scissors that he was not supposed to have. (laughs) And he cut a few holes in his sheets and comforter while he was supposed to be sleeping. (laughs) Of course. Of course. And I found them the next day and I just hand stitched the holes closed and the comforter lives on to fight another day. (laughs) What size holes are we talking? Um, So the ones in the sheets were like quarter size. The one in the comforter was like 
a gash, like, I don't know, <laughs> four or five inch long, oh, jagged gosh. gash. It does not, my, my stitching does not look good because I was basically <laughs> just trying to keep the thing functional. But um, it has held together through uh, oh a couple gosh. trips Kids through the washing brains. machines. <laughs> no, what was of course, he thinking? He didn't own up to it at first either. And I had to be like, so this whole, oh, it's been there. <laughs> Child. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So, so funny. Yeah. Did you learn to sew growing up at all? Was that some part of your childhood? Like not from relatives. I think I learned mm-hmm. very basic like sewing things together at some horrible field trip, but not really. <laughs> I mean, and I'm when I do it now, it looks really bad. Yeah. 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 I so my grandma taught me to sew with her sewing machine. As a kid, like we made dresses together and dolls clothes and stuff like that. But I, I mean, I left that probably by 10 or 11 years old. I haven't touched it since. And I don't have room for a sewing machine or anything. I never mm-hmm. learned to hand stitch. I could sew a button, but, but yeah, um, this is all very new for me. I don't have a lot of confidence in this realm. So, um, I, have really, I don't know, I've just enjoyed like, Hey, this has a hole. I'll fix that. Like That's I feel so very yeah. capable. Mm-hmm. So the last thing I'll say about it is that it's a pretty low cost of entry. The first kit that I bought was literally $20 and it was everything you need to get started. And a lot of the things that came with it, you can reuse for other projects. And I think mm-hmm. I've spent maybe another $20 since then. I even saw a kit this week at the Dollar Tree in the $5 section. It was this really cute little llama and I almost bought it, but I don't have anybody in my life that needs an embroidered <laughs> llama so and i don't need it so um the stitch book i got used on thrift books and there's always fabric on clearance at craft stores you can get free patterns online all the like stitches that you could ever want to know there's video tutorials of them on youtube and etsy has really good kits so i highly recommend embroidery as this like low cost kind of easy um craft art form you know and if anyone's even just a little curious or maybe there's a kid in your life that could use something to keep their hands busy <laughs> Avery. i mean i say go for it yeah Avery. <laughs> he has he loves watching my progress and he gets really excited like i'll show him Aww. like a, i'm working on something with a bunch of flowers on it right now and i'll show him a new flower that i just finished and he goes mommy <laughs> Look oh, at that. That's You're so sweet. So good. Yeah. It's so oh, sweet. I love it. Yeah. And I don't know. Something that I'm learning about myself is the inner relationship between creativity and mental health. And what I mean by that is that, like, doing creative things, tapping into my creativity, it benefits my mental health. I can tell, but I can also kind of gauge my mental health by how easy or hard it is for me to access my creative side. I don't Mm. know if that makes sense. It's Mm -hmm. like this, this chicken or egg thing. When I'm struggling mentally or emotionally, I have a harder time doing anything creative. Like I can't sit still long enough to do something with my hands. I kind of have an attitude of like, what's the point? I can't tap into my imagination. But what I've learned is like when I'm in that headspace, just doing anything creative, even if it's just sitting down with Avery and like coloring for a little while, that little step can be enough to ignite my drive to want to do more, which then in turn helps me get out of a low mood or feeling stuck. So it's very much like they're interwoven. And I've realized that it's something that I need is to be very intentionally trying to add creative opportunities to my life because it's just good for me. So in addition to the embroidery, I've signed up for an in-person weekly watercolor class that starts soon. <laughs> It was supposed to start this week, but uh, the schedule got changed around. So I'm just waiting, but um, I'm so excited. Uh, I love that. Like getting you out of your left brain. Yes. You know, where so many of us live and you are such a creative person. I'm glad you're finding new ways to explore that part of yourself. And it sounds really fun. And Mm -hmm. you found a way to try something without getting too overwhelmed because that is the biggest mistake I Mm -hmm. make when I try to get into a hobby, Mm -hmm. right? I want to like dive head first and without trying trying it and knowing if I like it. And so I'll just like get all the things or feel like I have to have all the stuff. So I think you've modeled, you know, how to explore our passions a little bit at a time and in a way that feels manageable and exploratory and fun. So 
I don't know if I'll do yeah. embroidery, but I'm like, oh, what is something like that that I would want to do that has a low entry, you know, like where Friendship it's easy to just start. Friendship bracelets. Weaving some kind of like. <laughs> I was thinking makeup tutorials. <laughs> oh, no, that'd be fun. That'd be really yeah. fun. Yeah. Um, so for me, um, very different, but related. Like I've been thinking about how to use, explore my creativity in very like small ways. So. I've been using a lot of like colored pens and stickers and markers in my planner, which I got this dream book planner this year. Um, you know, the planner that's going to change your life, but I actually have used it every day. And instead of just using black ink, I'll like think about the color scheme I want to use for that week, depending on, I don't know, whatever color I'm into. And it's just like this tiny spot of joy each day as I yes. sit down. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to play with some stickers and markers. And like, it's fun to flip back through and see all the color throughout it. Um, and it's functional too. So this week I'm using aquas because I'm just like finding them very soothing and we're heading to the beach in a few weeks. So it feels like a summery color. So that's a tiny bit of how I've been doing that in my own I life. Love that. Yeah. It's just like, and it's totally just for me, you know, it's yes. like coloring. Yeah. And stickers are really fun to buy when you're not a kid. You can get whatever stickers you want. <laughs> yes, they are. I had this friend in college and she was like Elle Woods in Legally Blonde. Like she had pink sparkle, fluffy, everything. And I used to think like how immature, like have we not, you know, moved past this or whatever. But man, that was the wrong idea. She really had it figured out. She bought things that brought her joy. She used mm -hmm. things that like made her happy and were fun. And I just, I love that you're, you know, embracing that. I'm trying to do that too. Like instead of what does, you know, Instagram tell me is aesthetic. What do I actually yeah. like? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. It's fun to just make things beautiful just because. Yes. Like, they don't have to only be functional. They can be beautiful too. with just a mm -hmm. little bit of intentionality. Um, so as I was hearing you talk about, you know, your creative, creative process and tapping into that more, I was thinking about my own processes and practices and ways I'm trying to tap more into my intuitive side, which I think are very linked with creativity. And I've actually shifted my morning routine a good bit. Like it's evolved a lot this year. And I thought I would talk about it some in case it's inspiring to anybody else. The first thing I've started doing differently is the practice of morning pages, have you heard of this practice before? I have heard of it. It sounds intimidating. <laughs> I've always been too scared be. to do it. <laughs> it could be, I guess. So it's a practice from the books, the, the Artist Way. So all about creativity by Julia Cameron. And it's, I think it's very simple. It's like, this is how she describes it. So morning pages are three pages of longhand stream of consciousness writing done first thing in the morning. There's no wrong way to do it. They're not high art. They're not even writing you're actually not even supposed to read it again. Um, oh. Yeah. They're about like anything, everything that comes to your mind. And for your eyes only, uh, they're thought to like provoke, clarify, comfort, cajole, prioritize, and synchronize the day at hand. So don't overthink them. Just put three pages of anything on the page and then do three more pages tomorrow. So I started this practice about a month ago. It was because I had heard about it. And then like I heard about it a few different times from different people. I'm like, okay, spirit, fine. You're telling me I need to try this. And I mostly love it. I used to get up and journal first thing in the morning, but really it was more of a morning pages practice because it was a lot of brain dumping and I'd read it back later only to be like, why did I capture this crap in a book <laughs> that I'm going to keep? You know, so it's like, it's like doodling. In the edges of a notebook or finger painting, like the point is the process, not the content. Mm -hmm. And I found it to be very, very mind clearing. Um, and over time, not that it's been that long, but I kind of see them taking like a very loose structure where, where I will, if I've had dreams, I'll write out, you know, what happened in the dream. Then I'll work through like my frustrations or fears. And you don't have to like segue. You can just start talking about something new in the middle of it. And I find by the end, I'm in a more like meditative place where I'm like calling in what I want my, my day to be like. It honestly, it takes a long time. It takes like 45 minutes to I write. I think that's what has been intimidating. Three pages. Mm -hmm. But you could get a small book. A very small notebook. Yes. Yeah. And do three pages <laughs> in the small notebook. So it is a commitment. And sometimes I do kind of rush through them and my handwriting is horrible in them because I'm like just trying to get it out. But it's been a helpful way to sort through all the gunk first thing in the morning. So then after that, I usually head outside if the weather's good 
and go for a walk or for a run. And I've never, I mean, I have been a runner in the past, but I've never enjoyed it. And I might've talked about this on the podcast, just like approaching running differently. I go as slow as I want to and only for as long as I want to. And I actually enjoy it for the most part. So as long as it's not pouring outside, I will head out in the morning for a walk or for a run, um, which connects me to my body. It connects me to nature. I always try to go, you know, through the woods at least a little bit. I've seen hawks. I've found hawk feathers. I have like, it's been a beautiful just way to connect with the earth. Yeah. And it, and it continues that kind of mind clearing ritual from the morning pages practice. And then I get home, I meditate for just a little bit. Um, like 15 minutes. And when the weather's nice, I'll grab a blanket and go outside in the backyard. Cause again, I want to feel like connected to nature as much as I can. And like there are a bunch of bunnies around. So we're all like out eating grass, which is super cute. So, and I know it's going to be hot and humid here before too long. So I'm just like enjoying the cool morning. So that combo morning pages, a walker run and a meditation practice, it really does make me feel good. And even if I don't do anything else for the rest of the day, I'm like, I just did all that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Sure. Yeah. And I definitely feel better than, than when I woke up most of the time. And then the other thing I was telling you about the other day is I've turned my office closet into like this witch's closet, <laughs> which is really fun. It's like a little, there's an altar in there um, my, with my cauldron and I have some witchy artwork and crystals in there. And then I set up a little meditation and tarot station. So I keep all of my like herbs and oils in there. And so before I sit at my desk, I'll go in there first and like cleanse the space, connect with spirit, pull cards before my day, my work day begins. Um, and I say all of that because one of the things I've realized in working with my natal astrological chart, which I've been studying more is like, I don't have a single planet in an earth sign, like none mm. of them. I only have one water, my sun. That's it. Everything else is like fire and air. And if you think about those elements, fire and air combined, you get combustion. So grounding myself through these rituals, like being outside, you know, pen to paper, running, meditating on the ground, connecting with spirit in those ways, that really has helped calm me down and enter my day a lot more slowly and intentionally. Because if I give into that like fire and air energy, I am like, dissociated almost. And so it's been a way for me to go, this is how I want to feel the whole day is how I feel right now. So that is my morning practice right now. And I'm sure in a couple months it will be different. (laughs) I love all of that so much. I think it's so cool that you have taken the time to think about like what's missing. I need some more grounding. I need some more earth in my life Mm -hmm. and then intentionally creating space for it. I think a lot of what you said resonates with me. I think we're both in a phase of like reevaluating where mm-hmm. we are, how we got here, mm-hmm. figuring out what we want our lives to be after decades of following a very prescribed path. And some of that question for me, and it sounds like it might be for you too, is like, how do I want my days to feel? Which for me has been hard because I know what I don't want, <laughs> figuring mm-hmm. out what I do want has been a lot harder. And I just, as I'm talking, I feel like we need to do a whole episode on this too. Yeah. I feel similarly too. And even just creating that open space for asking the question, Mm -hmm. you know, what do I want? What do I want to fill my life with um, can be helpful. And just being super intentional, what we're calling in, I think is so important because for so many years, I just completely ran on autopilot. Like the alarm went off. I never stopped all day until I passed out in bed. And now I'm trying to cultivate a lot more ease. I'm not saying trying. I do. I cultivate a lot more ease with these practices and just I'm moving a lot more slowly through life a lot of the time because when I slow down, I'm much more present, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. like those moments when I'm with Sammy reading, you know, it's like I just feel like I can just fully be there with her. So, yeah, I would love to do a whole episode on that. Okay, back to you. I know you've got more to share. Okay, this is the last thing. (laughs) I want to share my love of science fiction and really not just science fiction, but all speculative fiction, which like includes fantasy and just things that things that aren't real, that could be basically. And Mm -hmm. I want to talk about what I've been reading lately that folks might want to check out. So 
science fiction seems like a polarizing genre. People either love it or hate it. And honestly, I can see why people, especially women and people of color, might hate it. It's a very white male dominated genre. And because of that, there are a ton of tropes that just get reinforced over and over, like the hyper masculine hero, the chosen one, you know, good versus evil. And a lot of sci fi has a tone that is pretty bleak, you know, like these ruined dystopian worlds with lots of violence and corruption, especially against women, <laughs> like that stuff, not my favorite. That can be really hard to read, but there is so much to love about science fiction as well. And I could spend hours talking about like the feminist history of sci-fi and speculative fiction, but authors that we've talked about on the podcast before, like Octavia Butler, and Ursula mm -hmm. K. Le Guin, they were pushing norms even in the 1970s. Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower is bleak as hell, but <laughs> yeah, the, it I mean, it's, yeah, it's rough, but the protagonist is a 16-year-old black girl with hyper empathy who creates an entirely new <laughs> spiritual belief system and, like, gains followers, and it's mm -hmm. like, that was unheard of before her, and I think there's just a lot to really love about the genre, and what I really want to talk about is more of a subgenre of sci-fi. I don't know if it has a name, but I think of it as hopeful sci-fi. Mm. <laughs> to me, these books are asking big what-if questions that explore ideas beyond our current paradigm, but they don't automatically go to the darkest possible alternative <laughs> like a lot of other books in the genre, like most of sci-fi tends to go. Of course, there are questions like, what if Earth became inhabitable, uninhabitable, and humans mm -hmm. had to leave? But what if that didn't result in violence? What if the humans who left committed to peacemaking? Mm -hmm. What if people changed genders cyclically based on their hormonal cycle and every person had the capacity to gestate life? What if sex work was respected as a healing practice? <laughs> like, that's what I love about sci-fi, the ability to think beyond what we know. So I have two authors I want to recommend. The first is Becky Chambers. Have you heard of her? Have you read anything by her? Mm -mm. Okay. Her books are some of my all-time favorites, not just in science fiction, but of all books. Her Wayfarer series explores what I was talking about earlier. What if we destroyed the Earth and the people with money left and colonized Mars, abandoning everybody on Earth that didn't have money? Like, yeah, that feels like something that could really happen. Mm -hmm. And then all the people who were left behind that couldn't afford to go had to figure out how to get themselves off of Earth. They built a spaceship, they left the Earth, and then they traveled space for years just on the hope, a hope and a prayer, basically. They almost starved, and then one day they happened to be found by the Galactic Commons, which was a huge network of alien races and civilizations who are light years more advanced than humans. Like so far advanced, they almost didn't let humans into the galactic commons because we needed so much help. <laughs> I think that that's the most likely scenario anyway. Say, yes, I do too. So the books in the series are all connected, but they're also all standalone with different protagonists and set in like a different part of the universe. Um, my favorite of the series is Record of a Spaceborn Few, which is centered on the humans who left Earth, but they... Once they met up with the Galactic Commons, they chose not to integrate. They instead decided they wanted to stay living on their ship called the Exodon Fleet. They don't have a planet. They just have this closed system of ships. And this big, this book like digs into what does community look like when we don't have endless resources and every bit of space and water and food and air is precious and we treat it that way. How do we make sure that everyone has what they need while we still honor everyone's individuality? And what I love about her book is the characters are complex and there is conflict, but everyone is still for the most part, kind and funny and super diverse in every possible way. Same-sex relationships are no big deal. Trans or genderless characters are no big deal. Poly relationships are common. There's all kinds of family makeups. And she also has this new series called Monk and Robot, which is like beautiful and almost meditative. I won't go into the plot of that. I could go on forever about Becky Chambers. I'll just leave it there. But I highly <laughs> recommend her books. And the other author I want to recommend is Martha Wells. 
specifically her Murderbot Diary series, which is what I've been devouring this spring. It has been easy to do because most of the books are short, like novella length. I think she only has one full-length novel out of the seven books, I think. So Murderbot is a sentient robot who was created to be a security unit that gets rented out by humans whenever they have like a dangerous job they need to do. And Murderbot's prime directive is to protect its human clients at all costs, obey their every order, which includes killing other humans and potentially itself if needed. And people just treat Murderbots like appliances, like killing appliances. And they get Murderbots to do all their nefarious bidding. And the Murderbots have no say until the series begins when... Murderbot, the main character, hacks into its own system and figures out how to disable the module that forces it to obey human commands. It basically gives itself free will. This series is so exciting. Lots of action, lots of mystery. I could not read this one before bed because it got my heart pumping too much. It was too exciting and I had to keep going. But it also asks big questions like, when I'm not following orders, what do I actually want? I mean... (laughs) Relatable. (laughs) What do I want my life to look like? How do I circumvent my original programming? Who do I want to be in relationship with? How much of myself do I want to share with others? What's my responsibility to other murder bots? Is it to free them or, you know, do I have more responsibility to myself? And I feel like, you know, it's pretty obvious why I'm into murder bot. Katie, (laughs) I think we're coming full circle here. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. When you were talking, um, it reminded me of Murderbot specifically. It reminded me of the sci-fi book Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. I have not It's all about like AI and these, yeah, robots who are very human-like, who like are there to serve other human beings, like be their friend and stuff. Anyway, you might be interested in that one, too, because there are some similar themes for sure. I will check that out. Definitely. So I hope I've made my case for sci-fi for any I of this. Convince me and I don't usually read much sci-fi. I actually think you'd really love Becky Chambers stuff. Um, it's it, it's just really good. Very. Uh, I always feel very heartwarmed afterward. So if any of our listeners out there are interested in dipping a toe into this genre, there is a great article on Book Riot called 20 Must Read Feel Good Science Fiction Books. Oh, I love that. Yeah. We'll link them in the show notes. Um, And Becky Chambers and Martha Wells are both included on this list. So that is it for me. That's what I've been enjoying this spring, Katie. What a rich and like diverse assortment of things. Yes. I love that. I love that. Hopefully our listeners have heard of at least something maybe that they want to try or watch or read. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, I feel inspired now. So it's been really fun to do this episode with you. And I'm looking forward to diving back into more taboos with you on our next episode. So I will talk to you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 